Well, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Good, good, good. Hey, if this is your first time with us or you're new to the church, uh, typically what we do, if you didn't know this by now, is we go through books of the Bible. We just got finished with the book of Hebrews. Before that, we were in Daniel. And so what we typically do is we just go books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We kind of don't really deviate that um, from that. But um, for the next six weeks, we'll be doing something just a little bit different. We are going to be in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus, and we're going to be taking six of those teachings that kind of contradict our culture and how we understand Christianity, and we're going to be focusing in on those, and we're going to be really talking about those. So I hope that you are ready. I hope that you are ready to go. I hope that you're ready to uh, just see what what Jesus says about what it means to be one of his followers. Um, If you've got your Bible, we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, so I'm doing this week, and Corey is doing next week. I will actually be out of the country next week. I'll be in Uganda. So if you are a praying person, I hope that you are uh, please be praying for me as I travel over there. We, we work with a ministry over there called Jesus Commission Ministries. And I went last uh, year, in January last year, and we do pastors' conferences. So about four or 500 Ugandan pastors come together. We do uh, discipleship and training. And uh, if you give to this church, you support 400 to 500 Ugandan churches. How cool is that? So yeah, you can clap for that. That's cool. So your giving not only like affects Murfreesboro, it affects like all around the world. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, last time I was there, I kind of had an awkward uh, cultural experience. I don't know if you've ever had one of these before. Um, I, I was about to speak at a church, and we were they kind of had like a green room for the pastors, I guess. And so we were sitting, and I didn't get to know these pastors. And um, one of these guys brought uh, a purse for my wife, and had like this long robe for me, and kind of gave this to me. And he was you know, really excited about it. And I said, oh man, thank you so much. He says, yes, yes, my brother, we're becoming friends. I said, yes, we're becoming friends. He said, yes, we are making love. <laughs> I said, no, we are not. <laughs> uh, he said, yes, we're, we're making friendship. I said, no, there's two different things, buddy. Yeah, that's not what you said. So um, what, what I realized is that um, one phrase can mean something drastically different to two different cultures. You guys know that, right? Like one phrase, one word even can mean something drastically different to two different cultures. And I was in England for the first time. I ordered a hamburger and I asked if I wanted chips with my hamburger. I said, of course not. I'm an American. I don't want chips with my burger. I want fries with my burger, right? He said, we don't have fries. I said, all right, I'll take chips. So they brought it out and the chips were what? Fries, right? So I, I was a little frustrated about that. That happens in cultures all the time. We get a word, we get a phrase, and it can mean one thing to someone and means something completely different to something else. So let's take this word Christian. In our nation, about 68 to 70 percent, depending on what study you read, of people in the United States of America identify themselves as Christian. That's mind-blowing if you're paying attention to what's happening in our culture and context now. The only problem is we get to define kind of what that means. Some people say, you know, to be a Christian, that just means you're in church when it matters. And then if you kind of go into that, what makes that even more confusing is everybody has their own definition of what it means to be in church when it matters. Some people say Christmas, Easter, you get married in a church, you dedicate your kids in a church, and then when you die, maybe you have a Christian burial, and that's what it means to be Christian. Other people say, no, 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 it's got to be more than that. You got to be in church at least one hour a week, and if you're super fanatical, then maybe Wednesday nights, but let's not get too crazy. And then another group of people says, you know, it's not really about that. It's, it's more about being a part of this subculture and this movement. So we just take that word Christian and we tack it in front of all the things we want to do anyway. So we have Christian music and Christian coffee shops and Christian bookstore and Christian television. And there's actually a Christian amusement park opening up in Kentucky. Somebody's using commercials for that. And so it's really just a subculture that you're a part of. And if you're around all the people that kind of adopt that descriptor for all of your life, then that makes you Christian. And then you got another group of people that say, no, it's just about the, the teachings and mindsets and philosophies of Jesus. You just kind of do what he did. He loved everybody, and they just, just do that. But I think it, it probably is important for us, if this is what we're saying in our culture, it means to be a Christian, for us to kind of back up a little bit and say, wait, 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 hold on. Everybody's kind of defining it for ourselves. What if we went back to the source and really asked the founder of this movement what he said about it? And then we studied the history of this movement and really found out what the first followers of Jesus actually looked like and tried as best as we could to align our lives in submission to what he said. See, for the early church, for the first believers, Christianity was not a culturally accepted religion. It wasn't 68 to 70% of people in the population 
accepted and said that they were Christians. It was a new, radical, countercultural lifestyle. It could get you killed. In fact, it usually did. To become a Christian meant that you were doing more than just saying, okay, I'm going to give God one hour a week on the weekends. It meant that everything in your life changed. And, and this was not just, like I said, a religion. It was a lifestyle change. And it involved imitating the life of Christ, every aspect of it, even if that meant dying. And history tells us that in the early part of the Christian movement, there were martyrs that gave their lives for this movement. Sometimes our understanding of Christianity in the West and in our context and our culture can be a very far departure from Christ's original teaching. In the early days of Christianity, they weren't actually called Christians at first. Our, our first indications of what they were called in the book of Acts says that this movement, Jesus people, Jesus followers, they were referred to as this, the way. Jesus had said, said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when people identifying themselves as followers of the way, what they were really saying is we're going to follow how Jesus lived and what Jesus said and what Jesus taught. We see in Acts chapter 9 that Saul, when he was persecuting early believers, he referred to them as the way. And so this was kind of normal Christianity, the normal Christian life. It was a lifestyle change. It was countercultural. It was radical. But then we look at what we've done with it. And we look at what we say about what it means to be a Christian in our nation. And it doesn't look much like that at all. But I think we've come about this honestly. And it's because of this. Because all of us, you, me, everybody in this room, whether you want to admit it or not, you have a lens. I have a lens. And this is a lens that has been shaped largely by our own experiences, by our own upbringing, by our own background. And, and that lens is, is how we see the world around us. That's how we see people. That's how we see church. That's how we see how things are supposed to be. Some of us admit to that. Some of us don't. But if we're intellectually honest, we've got to come to a point and say, okay, I've got a lens. And our culture, when, I'm, when I say that word and when we're talking about that word, here's what I mean by that. The characteristics, the mindsets and the beliefs of whatever group of people we belong to. So America has a culture. The South has a culture. Murfreesboro, Tennessee has a culture. This church has a culture. Your family has a culture. Your workplace has a culture. Oftentimes, our culture becomes the most influential force in shaping our values. But, but as believers in Jesus, here's what we believe. We believe that the teachings of God, the Word of God, what God says about life, that that's transcendent. It's not attached to one culture. It's superior to culture values. It's eternal. Because if we look at the values of culture, what we'll see is that cultural values are relative. Now notice I did not say that truth is relative. Truth is not relative. Truth by its nature is absolute. It is unchanging. However, the values of a certain culture can be relative. They can change depending on the time, the place, and the environment. I'll give you an example. There was a a study that was put out a couple years ago, and they wanted to see how people from different nations and different cultures viewed certain, uh, basically, uh, social taboos. So they took this issue of adultery and marital infidelity, and they asked 40 different nations. They said, is it immoral to have an affair? And 78% of people across 40 different nations says, yes, that's immoral. Well, there were a couple of nations where when they got the results back, they said, my goodness, 47% of people in certain places like France said it's immoral, but 53% of people said, no, it's not. It's not a big deal. It happens all the time. And so if you and I let the culture around us shape what we think is right or wrong or shape what gives our lives meaning and directions, we're not going to be led in the places that we want to go. But what we believe is that biblical values are absolute. They're unchanging. Even if their application varies from culture to culture, God's word never changes. His values never change. But when the teachings of Jesus contradict our culture, contradict how we view the world through the lens that's been shaped through our backgrounds, our experience, you and I have a choice. We can do a couple of things to the teachings of Jesus. The first thing we can do is we can redesign them. We can look at everything he said and we can say, yeah, I don't think he really meant that when he said that. That's just kind of been misinterpreted. And so we can build a Jesus that looks just like us and tells us only what we want to hear. We can make a Jesus that's a white middle class Republican that drives a minivan and just kind of affirms everything we want to believe. We can make a Jesus that's a tea drink and socialist with a man bun, tells us everything we want to hear, 
right? We can prop this Jesus up and say, I want to believe in this Jesus, or I want to believe in this Jesus, and he always gives us a thumbs up for the life we want to live with or without him. And we can redesign Almighty God to fit our own priorities and agendas, and we see this all the time in our culture and context. Or here's another one. We can silence the teachings of Jesus we don't like. We, we love the parts about him saying, you know, you're going to go to heaven when you die if you believe in me. But when he starts getting into like how we spend our money, when he starts getting into how we love our enemies, when he starts getting into forgiving people that have wronged us, we just kind of turned a blind eye to that. And I don't want to hear about that. I want him to tell me what I want to hear. So everything he says I don't like, I'm just going to kind of silence and hit the mute button on. Or we can come to the teachings of Jesus that contradict our culture and we can accept them. You can say his kingdom is not of this world. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I'm going to bow the knee, not try to conform him or hit the mute button on him because he's God, not me. Let me suggest this to you. This is the kind of God that you want. Because if you have a God that never challenges your preconceptions, a God that never corrects your errors, a God that never offends your sensibilities, a God that never crosses your will, that may not be the God of the Bible. That, that may just be a God that you've made up. That, that may be a God of your own making and your imagination. And that's not a real relationship. Like, I know that I have a personal relationship with my wife because sometimes we disagree with each other. It's not fighting, it's disagreeing, right? Right? Married people, yeah. You remember the movie The Stepford Wives? These men got really, really, like, intimidated by their wives, so they put a chip on the back of their wife's head, and their wives were subservient and obedient and submissive and never challenged them at all, just kind of yes, dear, about everything. Some of us have a Stepford God, and we're comfortable with that. But let me suggest this to you. That's not a real God. That's a God you made up. And that's not really a God that is going to change anything about your life other than simply affirm you and what you want to believe with or without him. See, the real biblical understanding of what God does to us when we come into relationship with him is, is, is this. In the book of Hebrews, this is what it says about the word of God, that the word of God is living, that the word of God is active, that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, not just what you do, but why you do it. And we come into relationship with the true God of the Bible, with Jesus as he is, not as we would imagine him or wish him to be. He's going to get into our business and he's going to see those things in us that need to be changed. And the question is, are we willing to let him? So as we start this series, here, here's what I want to suggest to you, and this is what we're going to hang our hats over the next six weeks. That the teachings of Jesus transcend culture. The teachings of Jesus transcend chronology. It transcends whatever lens that you're wearing right now that's been shaped by how you grew up or how you were raised. And it's applicable for all people in all places at all times. And as we go into this series, here's what I, I want just for you to think about and ask yourself. You want to truly have a relationship with Jesus, not a step for God, not a God that just never crosses your modern sensibilities, but the true God of the Bible you must be willing to set aside all personal biases. You must be willing to bow the knee to him. You must be willing to accept him as the final authority in every area of your life. And so as we get into this, I just want to tell you the word of God is going to challenge us. The word of God is going to get into some areas of our lives that honestly is going to feel a little uncomfortable. But anything that God wants to reveal in your life, he wants to heal in you. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. You should have gotten a note sheet when you came in today. That's everything we're going to say. If you have the app, you version, you can go on and search for a live event, and we should be there as well. Everybody doing all right today? You're really quiet, and it scares me. So you can be a little louder. You can amen me, boo me, anything you... No, don't boo me. So <laughs> let's pray. Let's pray over my PowerPoint. It acted up at the 9, and we're going to... Cast these demons out of my PowerPoint this morning before we get going. So let's pray. <laughs> God, today we are, um, first of all, we're grateful. We're grateful we get to do this. We're grateful we get to gather together and have the freedom to open your word 
And we have the freedom, God, to just seek you and have you speak to us. And Lord, we, we just ask right now in the mighty name of Jesus, we would never take this for granted. We would never act as though this is something we're entitled to. We're not. God, the early believers met underground in fear for their lives. But Lord, here we are blessed enough to be able to do this. And so Lord, we just say thank you. And God, today I pray that you would speak to every heart in this room. Every person in this room, God, reveal to me, reveal to us, reveal to every person, Lord, things in our lives that need to come under the authority and lordship of Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would speak. You would speak. And let us just accept and obey everything you say and anything you say. We surrender to you. We submit to you. We've already made up our minds that whatever it is, we're going to say yes before you even speak it. And we just ask that you would do that. Lord, I pray you keep your hand on every church here in Murfreesboro, every pastor here. Lord, we pray if they proclaim that Jesus is Lord and King of Kings, Lord, that you would bless them, that you'd grow them, that you keep your hand on them, and God, your church would come together. We thank you and we love you. We invite you in this place as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Here we go. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, this is an interesting account in the Gospels, and I think if we've been in church for any number of time, we have this natural tendency to kind of just skip over it, because we've heard this story before, right? We've seen flannel graph Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, so we just kind of, all right, okay, he gets his followers. But let's really key in on and look at what's going on in this scene. So Matthew says, after Jesus was baptized, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, And after he begins his earthly ministry in Capernaum, he goes out and he starts calling his disciples. He starts calling these guys who would be the first Christians, the first people belonging to the way. And so if we really examine this scene, we've got to understand that this is how the Christian life is to be done, that this is normal Christianity. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, or life is a Christian, a Christian following the way. And Matthew points out that there were two brothers. There was Simon, who was later known as Peter, and Andrew, who were casting a net because they were fishermen. A lot of us, when we think about fishermen in the Bible, we think about these really like angry, dirty, grungy dudes. They're covered in fish guts and mud, and they're just mad, and they would do anything else if they had the opportunity. And that's not really what we see when we study kind of what was going on culturally. Um, Average fishermen in this day and age would have actually made a pretty decent income in comparison to other occupations. And Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, we know from the Gospel of Luke, had developed their business so much so to the point that they actually would have owned their own boat. So what we see is that these guys were probably living very comfortable and very normal lives. Peter was actually married. Matthew 8 says he had a mother-in-law. So either he had a mother-in-law without a wife or he was actually married, right? And a young Jewish man at that time that was married would have probably had a couple of kids. So I want you to see is this, these dudes were normal. They were normal Jews living normal Jewish lives and they had a family business to look after, they had kids to raise and they had just this whole keeping everything going smoothly and that was probably what took up most of their time, what took up most of their energy, what took up most of their attention. They weren't especially rich and they weren't especially poor. They weren't especially educated and they weren't especially illiterate. And they weren't especially religious or especially irreligious. They were normal dudes, just like you, just like me. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And this was not something that they were probably expecting. This was a radical departure from the script. Every culture will, will assign a script as to how your life is supposed to go. Right? For these guys, if you weren't especially gifted and talented at studying the Torah... 
When other people would go off to become rabbis, you would go and follow in your father's footsteps and whatever business that your father was in, you would kind of do what he did. And then at a certain age, you'd get married and you'd build up the family business and you'd have a couple kids and you'd go to synagogue once a week and you'd kind of just be a good Jewish man. And that was pretty much most of what you could expect from life. But then Jesus comes and he says, I want you to leave that and come follow me. And these guys at that time, as first century Jewish men, they wouldn't have had last names. So it's not like Peter Smith or Andrew Smith. There's no last names. They were identified primarily by their occupation. Matthew says these guys were fishermen by their fathers. Matthew also says there's a guy named Zebedee, and he has a couple sons. We later find out that Peter, his dad's name was Jonah. So Jesus calls him Peter Bar Jonah because that word bar means son of. Their political positions also would identify them. There's a disciple of Jesus named Simon the Zealot and where they were from. So I don't want you to miss this because here's what's significant about this. When Jesus calls them, he's essentially calling them away from every identity that their culture would assign them. Your culture will try to hijack your identity. Your culture will tell you that you are what you own. Your culture will tell you that you are what you do. Your culture will tell you that you are what other people say about you and the applause that you get. And when Jesus comes along, he says, I don't want you to be identified by those things anymore. You're going to leave that behind and you're going to come after me. And follow me, contradicted, follow the script. It was a radical, counter-cultural call to leave behind all of the things that define them and adopt a new lifestyle, not a religious system. Not a set of weekend activities, not just a simple mindset of this is how you think about stuff, a completely new lifestyle, one that surrendered control to Jesus. And some of us look at these guys with kind of this sense of chronological snobbery, like, oh, these simple plebeians following a cultural script. I simply don't follow that. I'm my own master. I do what I want. Okay. Everybody in this room, whether you know it or not, you're looking to something or someone to give your life meaning, direction, and purpose. So this is what their culture said to follow. You just follow the script. You follow what everybody in your family's doing. You follow what everybody expects of you. What does our culture tell us to follow? I'm gonna put a couple of these on the screen. You tell me this looks familiar. Um, Here's one I hear all the time. Have you seen this? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. If you pay attention to what you really want, you pay attention to your deepest desires, you pay attention to to that thing burning inside you. If you follow after that, 100% of the time, and you really keen in on what you want, you'll never be led astray, and you can't go wrong if you follow your heart. Here's another one that we see all the time. Follow your dreams, right? High school graduations were a couple weeks ago, months ago. This is what we told our kids when they graduated high school. Follow your dreams, like, and that feels good, and that feels liberating. If you can dream it, you can do it, right? R. Kelly, anybody? No? Okay. The problem is, if we really dig into this, we've been saying this to each other for so long that we've never really stopped and asked, well, wait a second. Is that true? I heard someone once say that uh, if you repeat something long enough, people just assume that it's true. So let's really look into this and ask, is it true? Well, follow your heart. That sounds great. That sounds beautiful. That sounds liberating. That sounds amazing. Only problem is this. Scripture says very clearly in Jeremiah 17, 9, your heart is deceitful and wicked of all things. Who can know it? Your heart will lie to you. At one moment, you think you know your heart. You one moment, you think you know why you're doing what you're doing. And then after you kind of follow what your desires kind of baited you towards, you wake up one day and realize you went further than you wanted to go and you stayed longer than you wanted to stay and you did things you never thought you were capable of doing. I don't know your heart, but I know my heart. Here's what my heart tells me. My heart tells me that every bit of reality around me ought to be about me and my desires. My heart tells me that I'm generally better than everyone else around me. My heart tells me that I'm better than you. My heart tells me I'm better than my neighbors. My heart tells me I'm pretty much the coolest guy I know. And if I allow my feelings and my emotions to dictate how I live every day of my life, I will be led towards a life that's unstable, that's inconsistent, and that's even full of addictions and vices. Your emotions make wonderful servants, but terrible masters. I'll give you an example. If I'm sitting at dinner with my wife, and it's like candlelight dinner, and smooth jazz is playing, and she's looking, fi, 
wine and I'm, we're having a great dinner. And this is the woman that I've covenanted my life to when we're married. That's the mother of my child. I'm like in love with her and those butterflies come up and I start feeling that emotion. That is a powerful gift from God to bond me towards her. And I thank God for that. I thank God for those emotions. I thank God for that affection. I thank God that in worship, it's okay to feel affection for Jesus and we're to do things that stir up our affection for Jesus. That's a powerful servant that God has given you. But if I wake up the next morning and I don't feel like being married, and I wake up the next morning and, and my wife has done something to hurt me or disappoint me and, and there's someone else that's paying me more attention at the bank and I'm following that, I'll be led to a place that I don't want to go. And we do this ridiculous thing in our culture and context where we feed each other these phrases, follow your heart, but we never really like talk about what that actually means. And then when somebody steps over an imaginary line, we sit back and go, mm, you had an affair, you followed your heart way too much. Here's another one, drink responsibly, right? <laughs> Just drink responsibly at the end of every commercial. Like, what does that mean? Like, to me, that could be one or two beers with my pizza. To you, that could be nine or 10 beers and get on your motorcycle. At least I didn't walk home, right? <laughs> but then you get a DUI and we all sit back and you didn't drink responsibly. <laughs> How about this one? Follow your dreams. Sounds beautiful, sounds great. Only problem with this statement is that there rarely is a barometer given to help measure the eternal value of a dream. Follow your dreams. Well, my dream is to invade Poland and become a dictator. <laughs> Don't do that. See, some of our dreams, some of your dreams, are motivated by your flesh. They're motivated by our selfishness. They're motivated by our insecurities, that we have a neurotic need for applause and recognition and significance for the people around us. And some of our dreams are simply motivated by our pride, that we want to make it, that we want to get someplace so everybody can prop us up on a pedestal and we can be made much of and we can be worshipped. And if we are following dreams that are ultimately meaningless and worthless, this is a sure path in our life to a, a, a life of discontentment and a life of disappointment. That if we look back on a life that we have spent chasing after a dream that has no eternal significance and no eternal value, we can look at the end of our lives and say it was wasted. We have to ask, does follow your heart and follow your dreams, is that compatible with what Jesus said? Jesus said to follow me. And see, if we look at this in the Greek, it, it's more than that. It's like an invitation. It's a very personal invitation. It literally reads, come, follow after me. And, and it's an invitation to imitate the life of Christ in all things, in everything. And it's so much more than a calling to a new religion or a new belief system. It was a calling to a new identity grounded in a relationship with the master. See, Jesus did not say, I am the good map that lays down his life for the map readers. He said, I'm the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. It's not a calling to rules. It's not a calling to a set of philosophies. It's a calling to a relationship with him where every day we listen to his voice and we follow him because he leads us. He says, my sheep know my voice because I call them by name. And so as we look at this phrase, come follow after me, I think if we look at the life of Jesus and we look at the gospels and how he lived this out for his disciples, I think there are four things I wanna look at today that this actually meant in the life of Jesus. So if you've got your notes, let's get ready. We're gonna go through these four. The first is this. When Jesus was calling these men, he was saying to them, I want you to live with me and I want you to learn by watching me. If you were to teach me how to be a carpenter, I don't think you'd be a very good teacher if you just gave me a textbook and said, good luck. No, I would like walk with you and I would see how you did it and you would show me, I would apprentice underneath you. you would, I would do life with you. I would live with you. I'd watch how you built something. And so Jesus says to these guys, I want you to live with me. I want you to watch how I respond to humanity. I want you to watch how I do this mirror. I want you to watch how I pray for people. I want you to watch how I teach. And so this was the invitation he called these guys to join him on. But for us, for you and I, when Jesus calls us, following him implies watching him and learning from him by reading his word, by knowing the character of Christ through how it's revealed to us in the word of God. And then after we know the character of Christ, reflecting on that and asking ourselves, does my life look like his life? And not just knowing about him, knowing him. 
communing him through prayer and simply living in his presence each and every day, waking up in the morning and saying, God, I'm here today. What, what do you have for me today? And you and I will grow in Christ when the focus stops being about us and God simply being a, 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 something that we add to our lives, but rather when we make it all about him, not about us. I think the life of the Christian should be less about the life of the Christian and more about the life of the Christ. It should be so much less about what I want to do and so much more about what he wants to do in me and through me. And when we live with him and we learn by watching him, we start growing and we realize we look more and more like him because we're keeping our eyes fixed on him, not on ourselves. The other thing he tells these guys, and you see this through his ministry, is to own my values, own my priorities. See, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, there were a lot of people that tried to hijack the mission of Jesus. They tried to align Jesus to their own agendas, their own priorities, whether that's political, whether that's religious or financial or otherwise. Simon Peter was actually infamous for this. There's one instance in the Gospels where Jesus is asking his followers, he says, hey, what do people say that I am? And some say, well, you know, some people are saying John the Baptist. And Peter says, I think I know this one. He says, I, I, I say that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, yeah, you got it. And he starts telling these guys about how it's necessary for him to go suffer and die and be crucified. And, and Peter says, uh-uh, you're not going to do that. So in one chapter, we see Peter recognizing that Jesus is God. And then a couple verses after that, Peter's saying, I know you're God, but I'm going to tell you what to do. And you're not doing that. But when we truly follow Jesus, that means that we truly surrender our own values and priorities. We don't get to say to God, no, you're not going to do that in my life. You're going to do this in my life. And we adopt his. And when Christians place more priority on agendas that are different from Christ, we become anything but Christ-like. When Jesus was here in his earthly ministry, he was constantly surrendering to the will of the Father. We see this even in the last night before he was crucified. He was praying. He said, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And if we're truly following Christ at the center of who we are, that's our heart cry each and every day. Not what I want, but what you want. The third thing is this. Learn to become passionate for the things that I live for. See, Jesus was often passionate about people that other people disregarded. I love the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels when children would run up to him because in those days, children were to be seen and not heard. They were nuisances. They weren't little people. They were kind of just, they would, you know, eventually become a person, but they were just kind of, you fed them and just didn't really pay attention to them. And Jesus, like, loves kids, and it really gets on people's nerves. Jesus loved the poor. Jesus loved the rich. Jesus loved the sick. Jesus loved leopards, prostitutes, thieves, soldiers, and Samaritans, a people group that the Jews wanted nothing to do with. And it really would make some of the religious elite uncomfortable. And they would ask questions like, Jesus, why do you hang out with these people? Like, you can hang out with us. Like, we're always inviting you to dinner. But these people, like, those are the people you hang out with. And Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, tells a couple stories. He says, you know, um, there was a shepherd. He had 100 sheep. And one sheep went astray. And he left 99 of the others and went after the one. And they're probably going, okay, what does this have to do with our question? And then he said, you know, there was a woman. She had 10 coins. And she lost one coin. I know she had nine other coins, but she like, didn't even think about the nine other coins. She turned her house upside down. She ripped the cushions open, took everything out of the shelves, looking for that one that was lost. And he said that there was a man with two sons, and he had one son who was like a good boy scout and did everything right, and the other son that raised hell and broke all the rules. And when that son finally repented and came home, that father ran off the porch and wrapped him up and kissed him and threw a party and greeted him with a ring and a robe. And finally, it must have clicked for these guys that to Jesus, all people had equal value and infinite value. That in the kingdom of God, there is no ranking the worth of a human made in the image of God. You can clap for that. That's fine. That's good news. See, in our flesh and our culture, we don't really believe that. We ask questions like, well, how much is that guy worth? What are we really asking? We're asking how much money does he make? Don't you see underneath that, what that really means is we're, we're ranking the value of a person based on how much money they have. And so when we come after Jesus, 
We're passionate about people, and we see them as God sees them, not through the lens of our backgrounds and experience, but through the lens of the kingdom of God. But not only was Jesus passionate about people, he was passionate about truths that others ignored. See, in that day and age, it was very common for the corruption in the temple to just be ignored. People would come to temple every single week, and there'd be money changers that were ripping people off and charging interest when people would make sacrifices. And, and I wonder how long that was going on before Jesus shows up and turns the tables over and says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Or divorce in that context and culture. People were misusing that. People were getting divorced for any reason. There was instances of people divorcing their wives because their wives would burn the dinners that they made for their husbands, and so they just divorce them because she burned my dinner. I'm divorcing her. So Jesus comes along, and this is a common cultural thing. You can divorce for any reason. And he says, wait a second. That's not how it's supposed to be. God said that when a man leaves his mother and father and becomes united to his wife, the two become one flesh. We're, we're treating marriage so lightly, and he preached against that. And that was a truth that people had ignored. That was a truth that people turned a blind eye towards because so many people were doing it. And so if everybody does it, then maybe you can just accept that that's just the way it is. But Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. And so if we follow Jesus, we become passionate about building his kingdom, not building our kingdom. We love people and we love truth more than anything. We ask ourselves this question each and every day with every relationship we've been given. Do I love this person as they are or do I love this person as I wish they were? Do I love this person in spite of all their inconsistencies and flaws and even sins? But I still love them because they're someone made in the image of God and God the Father sees them with equal and infinite value. And they have to ask the question, do I love truth? Am I committed to never compromising? Or if I'm around enough people that think something and say it enough, then I'll just kind of cave on that and think it the way that they think it. To follow Jesus is to be passionate about the things that he lives for. And to follow Jesus is to follow his example by doing the ministry he's come to do. Jesus said that he came to reveal the heart of God the Father in Matthew 11. He said he came to serve humanity in Matthew 20. And Jesus said he ultimately came to seek and save that which was lost, to bring good news of redemption and salvation. And as followers of Jesus, we are to view others as God the Father views them, not through the lens of our background or our experiences. And we're to connect them to God the Father's heart. That we're to serve humanity with humility. That we're to serve humanity with love and with sacrifice. That we're to be ambassadors for the good news of redemption and salvation. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Do I live on purpose? And do I live on mission? See, for some of us, it's so easy to like fall into autopilot where we're just doing life. We're not really thinking about the people around us. And we're not thinking at all about the kingdom of heaven thinking about just keeping things going. I got kids. I got a business to run. I, I, got, I, I can't be thinking about the people around me, but to do the mission of Jesus means we live with eyes wide open. We are living life on purpose and on mission, that we view every relationship we've been given as an assignment from God. That person that you live next door to, that's not an accident. In the Word of God, it says that he appoints our boundaries, meaning there's a reason for you living where you live. There's a reason for you working where you work. There's a reason you're in the family that you're in. And every relationship that God has given you, he's given you the responsibility to somehow, some way, connect that person's heart to God the Father. And the question is, am I doing that? Or am I just walking through life with my head stuck in my phone, not paying attention to anything besides myself? Jesus says when these men do this, it, He'd make them fishers of men. See, it's significant that he didn't say, follow me and make yourselves into fishers of men. No, Jesus promised to these men that if they surrendered to him fully, this would initiate a process of growth in their lives that would change them into something far better than what they were when he called them. And the one condition necessary for this radical process to be initiated was obedience to the command, follow me. And in our lives, it's Jesus that does the transformation. It's Jesus that changes us from the inside out. We can, we can maybe change the exterior and the veneer. We can get like behavioral modification things going on and try to fix ourselves. But the reality is we can't really change unless God gets a hold of our lives and changes us from the inside out through the Holy Spirit. But we still have to take a step of surrender to initiate that process. 
And I meet people so many times that are stuck in their spiritual lives and they want God to speak to them new things because there are things that they're unwilling to let go of. I, I think, and, and I'm just gonna suggest this to you, that if you're asking God to speak new things to you, but like you're not being obedient with the things he's already spoken to you, I don't see why he would give you anything new until you start being responsible he's already told you. And so if you're stuck in your spiritual life, it could be that there are things that you're not willing to let go of, and so God's not gonna take you any further until you surrender to him in those areas. And when we follow culture, just what everybody around us is doing. We follow our hearts, just what we want to do every single day, not what he wants, but what we want. We follow our dreams, my plans for how I want to do my retirement, my plans for how I want to do my career, my plans for how I want to do my family. And we follow that over the life and the values and the passions and purposes of Christ. We may think that we're getting a really good deal out of it, but the reality is we are selling ourselves out to a cheap and meaningless existence. In the Old Testament, there are two books of wisdom. One is the book of Job. The book of Job is about a guy that has everything you could ever ask for, and he loses it all, and in the end, he finds out that because he has a relationship with God, he has everything he could ever possibly need. And the book of Ecclesiastes is about a young man that gets everything the world says matters. He gets all the sex and women he could possibly want. He gets all the parties and the booze he could possibly want. He gets all the career accolades and the applause he could possibly want. He builds cities. He throws parties that last for weeks on end. And the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes is this young man looking at it all and saying, it's meaningless. It's worthless. Because in the end, he settled for a life apart from a relationship with the creator that was the only thing that could give his soul value and purpose and meaning and direction. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. It's not that you want too much. It's that you don't want enough. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When the disciples heard this command to come follow me, we see that their response to that was leaving behind everything they were holding on to in the moment. They were so confident in Jesus that they left their careers, they left their families, they left their values, they left their cultural scripts, all of that behind because they wanted to follow his lead. They didn't try to redesign what he said, they didn't try to silence what he said, they didn't try to twist it to fit their own priorities or agenda. They understood that if he said, come follow me, he wasn't lying, he wasn't exaggerating, he wasn't speaking figuratively, he really meant it. And to come follow him meant leaving behind everything else. Renunciation is a formal rejection of something. This is a lost value in modern Christianity. We, we don't ever talk about it. Most of us don't even know what that means in terms of our Christian walk. But in the early church, when someone was baptized into a church, when they made a public profession of faith, that they followed Jesus, whoever was baptizing them would say, do you renounce anything this world can offer you that would lead you away from the love of God. And this person would say, I do. I renounce it. Because they understood that to follow Jesus meant saying no to a lot of things. But in our culture, we've somehow created a culture and context that Jesus is simply an addition to a pre-existing lifestyle. But that's not what we see life looking like as followers of Jesus in the scriptures. We see that to say yes to Jesus as Lord involves saying no to a lot of other things, mainly to ourselves. Look at what Jesus said. Don't take my word for it. it said, he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, if anyone wants to do this, if anyone wants to come follow me and watch how I do things and live and follow me, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross daily. Not one time at youth camp when you were 12. Not last fall at worship night when you got baptized. Every single day. And follow me. 
If you try to hang on to your life, if you try to make it about your dreams and your plans and your passions and your heart, you'll lose it. It'll lead you down places you don't wanna go. You'll end up having a life that's meaningless and that's worthless and can do nothing for you. But if you give that up and you follow me, you'll save it. See, we see that. We know that's like a verse in the Bible, so it must be true, so we gotta believe it. But then when we really start asking the question, okay, in my life, like give up my own way? I've got a pretty good plan for how I wanna live the next 10 years. Give up my own way? I mean, I wanna do a relationship this way because that's what everybody else in my friend group is doing a relationship. I'm gonna do my sexuality this way because everyone else in my culture says this is okay. That's backwards and antiquated to do it any other way. The question is, what if there's a better way? What if there's a better way? What if, what if instead of following your heart, this thing that we tell each other, this thing that we all kind of repeat and none of us really stop and ask what that actually means, what if, what if we said, look, why don't we follow God's heart? See, the scriptures say that when we come into relationship with God, his Holy Spirit fills us up in such a way that he gives us a new heart and then he puts a new spirit in us, the Holy Spirit, that he takes out our stubborn, stony hearts and he gives us a tender and responsive heart and he puts his spirit in us that we will follow his decrees and be careful to obey all of his regulations, that not only do we get a new heart and a new spirit, he gives us new desires where all of a sudden we want what he wants. It's a psalm that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And if we make him our delight, if we come after him and say, I want your kingdom, not the things of this earth, that he starts to change us and he starts to give us new desires. And if we follow that, it's not gonna lead us to a place of disappointment and discontentment. It's gonna lead us to everlasting eternal life. What if instead of follow your dreams, we said, let's follow God's dreams for you. Some of us don't trust that God has any better plans for us than we have for ourselves. But God says this, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If he spoke the universe into existence, I'm pretty sure he can handle your career. If he turned water into wine and he parted the Red Sea, I'm pretty sure like, he's got a better plan for you concerning your retirement than you do. The question I want to leave us with as we close and we ask ourselves as we start this series, am I truly following Jesus? Am, am I following culture? Am I following Christ? I'll be honest with you. If I'm asking myself this question every day, a lot of days I wake up and the answer is no. I'm not following Jesus I'm not. I'm not doing what I do. I'm not doing this job for the right reasons. I'm not doing this job for the glory of Christ. I'm doing this job sometimes, being a pastor here at this church, so that you guys will applaud me and make up for my own neurotic need for significance and approval. <laughs> I love you too. But I have to ask that to myself all the time. Am I following culture? Am I following what Jesus wants? Am I saying no to myself? Have I mastered that art of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ or just cave in anytime my fleshly desires come up, I just kind of give in to it? Or am I saying yes to Jesus every day, dying to myself and taking up my cross and coming after him? Am I living with him? Am I watching him? Is, is my relationship with him such a priority that if I don't get time with my Lord and Savior, it feels like I haven't eaten that day? Am I owning his priorities? Am I passionate about his kingdom? Am I serving the people around me as he served me? If I'm honest with myself, the answer is no. Not every day. And each and every day, I, I wanna be the type of person that wakes up and asks myself this question and examines my life and says, in my life, have I fully surrendered to Christ in every area? Is he Lord over how I spend my money? Is he Lord over how I do my relationships? Is he Lord over how I do my free time? Is he Lord over how I forgive people and speak to people? Is he Lord in every single area of my life? Am I letting him lead me or am I just following what everybody else does around me and calling that Christianity?
you bow your head with me? This morning, I have no idea where you're at. This morning, maybe you wake up every day and that question, am I truly following Jesus? You can say with 100% certainty, yes. In every area of my life, I'm completely surrendered. But for the rest of us, myself included, there are days when I am so inconsistent. There are days when I am my own leader and there are days when I follow culture instead of Christ. And every single day coming after him is just another chance to look at him and say yes to him. Another chance for him to take everything and turn it completely around. And so if you failed miserably in this room, welcome to the club. Me too. right now in this moment with your eyes closed and your head bowed, will you just picture Jesus reaching out to you and as he says, come follow me, just say yes. Stop looking at yourself, stop looking at your mistakes and your inconsistencies, just say yes to him right now. God, in this room we are in such need of your grace, we are in such need of your mercy. God, so many of us in this room have not lived the life of surrender to you. We've lived the life where we've been in charge, where we've followed our dreams and our desires over your dreams and desires for us. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness and your mercy. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we look every single day to take up our cross and follow you, that you would give us the grace and the faith to believe that you hold a better way, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that your ways are higher than our ways. We pray you give us grace as we take up our crosses and follow you every single day. Guys, all around this room, there's communion. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sins and you have a relationship with him through faith, you're invited to take that as a symbol of his death. To my left, your right, there are people here that would love to pray for you, love to pray with you. If you're struggling through anything, if you've got anything that you're walking through, let us pray with you, let us pray for you. That's why we're here, that's why the church is here. But let's spend some time together in prayer and really asking ourselves these questions and bringing our hearts into an alignment with his will. God, we love you, we thank you. Speak to us now, God. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.